I inhaled through my nose, caught my own scent, and smelled one more feeling before I named it. Utter panic. This is Allie Daniels, and you're listening to Antimony. Episode 12, Air Freshener and Coffee. This isn't going to be easy, but you can see why it's important we get in there and get the records. I'm not 100% sure it's worth the risk. We had gathered up in the bell tower. Delani and I had explained what we had learned from Dr. Ellis. We left out the promise to give him a makeover and skipped right into our need to break into Dr. Beakley's office, somehow get up above the acoustical tiles, and retrieve the records. I'm scared, too but we need to get those records. I'm not scared. Okay. I'm scared. But I also don't know what we gain by taking the risk to get them. We all now know, thanks the two of you, it's possible that all of us are Iliad. What difference does it make to know for sure? I just found out I'm adopted. I just found out I'm adopted. And that I may, in fact... Be not just randomly strange, but strange because my biological parents were part evil angel. Aren't you curious to know if that's the truth about you too? I didn't add, and for all I know, you are my brother, you knucklehead. Of course I'm curious. I'm sure we're all curious. But if we're caught, if we can even get as far as rooting around in the ceiling of an office that may be inhabited by creepy biological relatives of yours or ours, what do you think they will do to us then? Is it worth it just to know for sure where your strangeness comes from? Now who's being the rule follower? It was the best retort I could think of. Thankfully, Neith spoke up. Well, there's another reason we have to get those records. Uh, Remember that transmission we got? Delani and Kaya just told us what that was. It must have come from one of the Elliot sanctuaries. Neith is right. Dr. Ellis said sanctuaries were founded all over the world, but Spree hadn't received any communications from them lately. The Gregories, or someone, must have attacked the sanctuary, and the Eliud got through on our tablet somehow. You think the records might show us who the Eliud and the transmission are, or where they transmitted from? I do. I wish I didn't, because otherwise I'm with Josh. Whether I'm Eliud or not doesn't matter at this moment. I'm here now. I may as well do what I can to survive and help others, too, if at all possible. But I'm not excited about the possibility of being caught and arrested by campus police if we're lucky or turned over to the Gregorys if we're not. All right. First, we need a plan for how to steal the records. Anybody got any ideas? 
We can steal a key to Dr. Beakley's office, make a copy, and go in after hours. We can distract Dr. Beakley, get him out into the hall somehow, and sneak in while he's out. We can come in through the window instead of the door. Then we wouldn't need a key. Does one of us have spidey powers? Uh, We can pretend to be with the maintenance crew and say that we're there to fix something important and that Dr. Beakley needs to leave us alone in his office while we take care of it. The maintenance crew? I could feel my forehead wrinkle and my eyebrows reach my hairline. Do we get to wear uniforms and tool belts? Delani, you actually like this idea? Why not? We persuade some maintenance workers to lend us their uniforms, and we figure out some problem in the ceiling that needs to be checked out, HVAC or something. Who would lend us their uniforms? Maybe we can lure some crew members into the washroom, conk them on the head, switch clothes, duct tape their mouths shut, lock them in the washroom, go find the records, hope they're still unconscious when we get back. Kaya! I'm kidding. We are not conking anyone on the head. Sheesh. It doesn't have to be difficult. Delani said we could distract Dr. Beakley. She's right. How? You all know. What is the easiest way to distract a teacher? Loud noises in the hall? No. Easier. Pull a fire alarm. Easier. Throw up in class. No. Pretend you're really interested in what they're saying. If they think you're interested, they're putty in your hands. That could work. Plus, have you noticed how Dr. Beakley closes his eyes when he talks about something he finds fascinating? Wow. You stayed awake long enough to see him close his eyes? Have any of us ever remained conscious through a whole Beakley lecture? We all shook our heads. She was right. Boring didn't begin to describe him. The most interesting thing about Dr. Beakley was the coffee mug he brought into class with him, yellow with a big smiley face on it. Its cheerfulness seemed really incongruous with the solemnity of Dr. Beakley's style. I never saw him drink from it, but I assumed a big mug of caffeine was what kept him awake during his own dull monologues. So, who can pretend to be interested long enough to distract him to the point that he might even close his eyes without losing consciousness themselves? We have to draw straws. It's the only fair way to decide. Plus, whoever doesn't have to go and fake fascination still has a hard job. The rest of us need to sneak in, get the files, and get out undetected. Do you have a plan for that, too? Rachel drew the short straw, and Josh did have a plan. Thankfully, it included a detail that sounded more certain than relying on Dr. Beakley to keep his eyes shut while we rummaged around in the ceiling above his desk. However, the same detail was what made our plan even more dangerous. Rachel would go into Dr. Beakley's office hours, feign interest in something he taught, try to lull him into a state of rapture over the world's most mind-numbing topic so he would shut his eyes and wax eloquent. Rachel would then slip a sleep aid she would make into Dr. Beakley's smiley face mug, wait for the drug to take effect, open the door, and let us in. We would get the files and exit the office before the soporific wore off. 
Rachel would stay long enough to thank Dr. Beakley for the stimulating information and probably even get brownie points from him for her rapt attention. What could go wrong? Okay, plenty. But dwelling on the possibilities seemed counterproductive, especially when the lives of Iliad children could be at stake. Rachel knocked on Dr. Beakley's door. Fingers crossed. Come in. Good afternoon, Dr. Beakley. I was wondering if you could tell me more about your theory of comparative genealogy. Oh, my dear, that is one of the most fascinating yet strangely underappreciated topics in historic philology. Our Google search of Dr. Beakley's dissertation had paid off, but I didn't envy Rachel. I hope she had drunk a triple espresso with her lunch. Shoot! Aranka's coming. I could smell the combination of her deodorant and the shark fin sandwich I had seen her eat at lunch. She appeared at the end of the hallway and was digging in her Prada clutch as she walked. She didn't seem to have noticed us. We can't just hang out here. A crowd outside Beakley's office will look suspicious. Let's duck in here. Neith was already pushing open the door next to boring Beakley's. You go. I'll distract Aranka and keep an eye out for Rachel's signal. Delani, Josh, and I scurried after Neith. Too late, I noticed the brass sign on the door. Male, faculty, restroom. Rats. The others had already figured out where we were based on the room's furnishings. Neith was wide-eyed and beads of sweat were breaking out on his forehead. Delani pressed her finger to her lips and checked under the stall doors to make sure we were all alone. All clear. We can't just hang out in here. Maybe these windows open. Josh tugged at the window frame while Neith, Delani, and I ducked into a stall in case anyone came in. Delani pushed Neith into the open room. We can't have six legs poking out beneath one stall. Four isn't better. Okay, everybody out. Bingo. A ledge. It goes the length of the building, including past Beakley's office next door. We're only three floors up. Uh, Neith, can you handle it? The exam results look good so far. I guess I'll have to. Go, go! The ledge was wide enough for us, and we could move toward Beakley's office window. We wouldn't be able to pass each other, but we had enough room to turn around, and the gray stone blocks on the building facade had enough space between them to get a good handhold. The next stage should be interesting. We will see who survives. This should not be open. Great. Just keep your fingers on the wall, relax, and if you need to look at something, look at me. You're really good at this. You're not even using your hands to keep your balance. I've spent a lot of time watching cats. They have nine lives. You don't. Please remember that. Okay, Josh, what now? Now we adapt and incorporate your idea. Conking maintenance workers on the head? Going in through the window. Oh, boy. Josh and I were the first in our procession along the ledge and took our perches on either side of the window, holding onto the brick edging along the frame so we could peer into the office. The window was large, with the slightly wavy glass you find in old buildings. Like the one in the washroom, the bottom pane would slide up and give just enough space for someone to step in. 
The ripples in the glass distorted Rachel's face as if we were looking at her in a carnival funhouse. But she was not having fun. We could see Dr. Beakley from the back. The top of his head was tilted slightly toward us. His wispy comb-over looked like strands of seaweed washed on the smooth shore of his pale head. We guessed that his eyes were closed based on the contortions Rachel was going through to keep herself alert. She alternated between pulling at her cheeks, giving herself the wide grin of a circus clown, and sucking them in so she looked like a bored fish trapped in a glass bowl. He's still awake. The drug must not be working yet. Please hurry. I uttered my own prayer to whichever evil angel had given humans the secret of pharmacopoeia. We waited, our muscles tensed. The feeling of cool, gritty mortar on my fingertips was changing to warm, slippery moistness. Josh and I jerked back in surprise when we saw Dr. Beakley suddenly stand and rush past Rachel to exit the room. Rachel sprang from her seat to the window, suddenly very awake. The drug isn't working. But he suddenly thought of a chart he had made showing the differences between Sumerian and Akkadian generational reckoning, or something like that. Even my elbows are asleep. Get in here quick before he comes back. Josh and I scrambled in the window, and Neith and Delani scooted along the ledge behind us so they could see in. Josh climbed on the desk and pushed up one of the acoustical tiles, easily dislodging it from the metal frame that held it in place. He handed the tile to me, and his head disappeared up into the space above the drop ceiling. The tile was disgusting. Along with the random pattern in the fiberglass, grayish speckled spitballs were stuck to it like tiny hornet's nests, probably shot there by some earlier board student trying to stay awake during one of Beakley's torturous discourses. The wads looked slightly damp. I don't see anything. It's just wires and dust. No files. He's coming. Get out. I turned toward the window, the fiberglass board still in my hands. I thrust it at Delani, who took it as I scrambled back onto the ledge, Josh following close behind. Josh waved us along the ledge back toward the window into the faculty restroom. To my surprise, Zia's head popped out from the open window. She extended a hand to each of us and helped us back in. I came in here when Beakley's office door opened. I had to duck into a store because two people were already in here. But get this, it was Dr. Ida and Dr. Callio. They were talking about whom they would examine in the dream lab next. Neith, it's you. His eyes widened and he dug into his pants pocket. Are you okay? Neith pulled an inhaler from his pocket and took a deep pull. Asthma. Anxiety can bring it on, but I'm all right. Eder and Kelly are gone, but we should get out of here. Why do you have that ceiling tile? I'm not exactly sure. Oh no, what have I done? Beakley's going to notice that a part of his ceiling is missing. Maybe you did him a favor. That thing is gross. Leave it in here. Stuff it in the garbage can. Wait! He grabbed it from Delani, held it level with his eyes, and rocked the panel slightly back and forth. Shoving the board under his arm, he pushed the door open and rushed into the hallway. Come on, get Rachel and tell her we need her at the chemistry lab. I went to Beakley's office door and peered in the window just in time to see the professor, 
who had been standing behind his desk and using a stick to point at a graph on a large chart labeled Frequency of Begette Cognates in Proto-Northwestern Semitic Dialects, suddenly dropped the stick and chart. He swayed slightly forward, then slightly back and forward again, and then dropped with a muffled thud face first onto the desk. Rachel stood as I cautiously opened the office door. It's about time. Maybe he just tuckered himself out. She smiled. She checked his pulse, then pulled gloves and a paper towel out of her bag. She slipped the gloves on and wiped his coffee mug inside and out. The cheery mug looked like it approved of what we had done. We need to go to the lab. Neith thinks we have something. Just a sec. I should leave him a note. Dear Dr. Beakley, thank you for your lecture. I hope you had a pleasant nap. Sorry I wasn't a more engaging audience. Neith and the others were waiting for us outside the lab when we arrived. Rachel let us in and we gathered at her station. Neith grabbed a pair of tweezers and began to pry the spitballs away from the tile, dropping them into a glass plate next to her microscope. Microdots. Dr. Ellis said the files were in the ceiling and we thought of paper files above the ceiling tile. But they're here, these wads. Microdots are tiny photographic images. Each one can have an entire page's worth of information. Spree started in Paris, right? Right. Microdots were invented there in the 1870s. It was a way people could give carrier pigeons a lot of information to carry all at once. Spree must have used the technique to communicate with families outside the city. Alice must have embedded the dots into moistened hunks of paper and thrown them at the ceiling when the security guards came to move him from his office. Can we look? She turned on the microscope and Neith stuck one of the gray masses under the lens. He looked through the eyepiece and poked at the lump with the tweezers until he dislodged a couple of the dots. Yes, this one's a list of names, dates, and locations. Uh, this one too. Uh, this could take a while, but we've got names of the Iliad. Uh, maybe the dates are birth dates? Or dates Spree rescued them. Or dates they went to new families? I see a heading on this one. Spree Norway, 1920. This one's Spree Denmark, 1935. Each of these is a long list of names, all under one date and location. This is Spree Ethiopia, 1872. It has an end date, 1875. Where the mummified children came from. These are the sanctuaries and their start dates and end dates. Their Gregorys must have found that one. Here's Spree Island, 1945. Can you find us on one of those dots? I'll do it. I'll move. I don't actually need the microscope. I have kind of freakish sight. I can see ridiculously small things. It helps with doing chemistry. Let me look. Okay, this should be the right time period. We sat in silence as she looked. Then slowly, as she found each one of us, she said our names aloud. She found everyone in the program but Neith. I'll keep looking if you want, but everyone else in the program is on here. Even the ones already sent home. Except that we know that Kieran and maybe the others weren't really sent home. Extracted. You don't think? Why not? If we're not useful to the Gregories one way, why not use us in some other way? So, Xanthi was Iliad. She's listed here. 
Maybe that's why her portrait in the bell tower was decimated and her ashes removed. She had passed for one of them. Then somehow they found out she wasn't genuine Nepheline. So what do we do now? I'll transfer this information onto a thumb drive. We need to keep it safe. Who wants to hold on to it? I'll do it. I've had extra pockets sewn into all my clothes. My homage to marsupials. I can keep it with me at all times. Okay. What else? Delani and I can go see if Dr. Ellis can tell us something more. Ready for the makeover? Makeover? Long story. Trust us. We quickly packed a duffel with scissors, tweezers, a razor, shaving cream, towels, and a hand mirror. I threw in an eyeliner, concealer, powder, and blush, just for good measure. But when we got to the zoology museum, we found out that Dr. Ellis was gone. Miss Healy, too. Left together. Sweet, really. I was coming off my rounds in the exhibit hall, and there he was, down on one knee in front of his very desk. Miss Healy was saying, yes, oh, you adorable scruffy lamb of a man, yes. He grabbed her hand, and off they went. How nice! A happy ending, I hope. Are you Kaya and Dilani? I should probably ask for ID. We showed her our student cards, and she slid an envelope across the desk toward us. It was the GYSP signature thick cream linen. Our names were written in the now familiar lavish calligraphy. I took the envelope, my hand trembling slightly. Open it. Congratulations. You have both qualified for the GYSP Week 3 Reward Expedition. Report at once to the common room. Congratulations. Our group was down to eight. I was relieved to see that Delani, Josh, Neith, Rachel, Zia, and I had survived. Aranka and Finton rounded out the group. We are disappointed that not all of our participants are able to continue with us into week three's activities. However, let that be of no concern to you. No one mentioned why Xanthi wasn't with us anymore. It was like she had never existed. Once again, the loss of the expelled is your gain. Call it the economy of the strong. I felt a chill, but I also felt my heart beat a little faster. Even though I was repulsed by Dr. Gregory's coldness, I was sure he was going to announce another weekly reward— fabulous prize would I get this week. I had even daydreamed about it during the week. I had always wanted a great road bicycle, a really expensive one, something titanium or lighter, and someone to do the maintenance on it. So all I had to concentrate on was riding. It wasn't my fault the others hadn't made it. Why shouldn't I benefit? Dr. Gregory brought me out of my reverie. Personalized rewards have come to an end. Oh. However, we move now to group rewards. This week, you all continue your studies abroad. Aranka brought her hands to her mouth as if she were an inflated balloon someone had forgotten to tie off and her fingers were keeping in the air. Or like she was Miss Ohio hearing that Miss Wisconsin was the first runner-up, so it was she who would be the next Miss America. 
Delani saw it too and rolled her eyes at me. Your next week will be a travel adventure. The course is called Skyscrapers, Past, Present, and Future. Our itinerary includes the site of the world's tallest skyscraper. Delani's eye roll turned into eyes wide open. Dubai? And why in the week before the same constellation that had appeared over the Tower of Babel was going to spin into place over the city that held the world's tallest building? Meet the limos out in front in precisely half an hour. You are dismissed. Yes, Fintan? Uh, Dr. Grigori? I don't have my passport with me. I didn't think I would need it. My heart sank, too. At least he had a passport. I had never been anywhere a passport was required. You will not require it. Aranka? But we are going out of the country, right, Dr. Grigori? Maybe she was thinking what I was, that Dr. Grigori must be taking us to Las Vegas or someplace where they had miniature versions of famous cities. Or there was another Dubai, maybe somewhere in the Midwest. I made a mental adjustment. It would still be a new adventure, and it would solve the passport problem. Allow me to reiterate, and do me the courtesy of listening. You will not need passports. The Gregora Young Scholars Program enjoys certain privileges that make passports irrelevant. You have something more to say, Aranka? I'm not sure 30 minutes is enough time for me to pack. Ah, my earlier comment seems to have been misperceived. This reward is quite personalized in one respect— a bag has already been custom-packed for each of you. He looked at Aranka, and she made the Miss America hand-to-mouth gesture again. Honestly, even I felt like one of the 50 finalists when they're issued their personal competition-issued bathing suit and evening gown, special and swept up into something bigger than themselves. I inhaled through my nose, caught my own scent, and smelled one more feeling before I named it. Utter panic. This is Allie Daniels. Thank you for listening to Antimony. This podcast was written by Amy Richter and is based on the novel Antimony, published by Whiffenstock. Copyright 2019. The novel is available at whiffenstock.com, amazon.com, and other online booksellers. Music was composed and arranged by Pan Conrad. You've been listening to the voices of the Silver Linings Players, a group of volunteers from all over the world who came together virtually during the COVID-19 pandemic to record this podcast for you. Episode 12 features, in order of appearance, Lydia Brower as Kaya, David Merrill as Josh, Catherine Hilton as Delani, Emmett Pro Richter as Neith, Rachel Hunter as Rachel, Aya Fuad as Sia, Charles Sweet as Dr. Beakley, Kadri Holmes as Dr. Eder, Jenny Ovenston-Smith as Dr. Kaleo, Lorena Molina as the security guard, Josiah Dykstra as Dr. Gregory, Joel Richter as Finton, and Sarah Phoenix Richter as Aranka. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend and give it a rating or review so others can find it too. We'll be back soon with episode 13.